you'd please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We'll be in chapter 4. John chapter 4. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Remember, we've already gone over the first almost four chapters now of John, in the very beginning of John, which is called the prologue, John kind of gives us an outline of the whole book. Um, He says that Jesus is very God. He's not just a man, He's the God-man. He's the agent of creation. He was sent from heaven to the world in the flesh to fulfill the purpose of His Father and fulfill the promises made to Abraham. But not only did the world reject Him, His own people didn't even receive Him. We're told all this in the prologue, the first few verses of this Gospel. But to everyone who did truly believe in Him, He made them His own children. Uh, This is the great wonder of the Gospel. You don't have to be a physical descendant of Abraham to get all the promises made to Abraham. To be part of the covenant with Abraham. So this rejection of the Messiah by the Jews... And really often the surprising embrace of the Messiah by Gentiles and Samaritans, as we saw last week, is a theme that we see again and again in the Gospels and even here in the Gospel of John. So the context of what we're about to read this morning is coming off of Jesus' time just spent in Samaria. He had spent two days of wonderful spiritual harvest in Samaria. And if you remember, the Samaritans were despised people. They were looked at as lower than the Gentiles because they took what was God's Word and combined it with a bunch of other worldly and pagan practices so the Jews just did not spend any time with them at all. And yet Jesus did. Jesus had a divine appointment to save a woman there and many others in that town of Sychar. And He stayed there for two wonderful days of ministry and harvest. He did no miracles there, but He preached the Word. And they believed. But now we see Jesus returning to His hometown, to His home place, His own people. He's returning to Galilee. So we often stand in honor of the Holy Word of God. If you are able, this is the last time I'll ask you to stand until the end of the service. Please stand if you're able. As we read God's holy and inspired Word sent for you this day. So he came again to Cana. This is verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants, slaves actually met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed. And all his household. Now this was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would enable us to receive this good word that you've given us. We pray that our hearts would be open to understand your word, that your Holy Spirit would come down upon us in a powerful and mighty way, that you would touch our hearts and enable us to hear your word and embrace it and obey you and love you with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength in Jesus name. Amen. So we've already mentioned that one of the things we'll see in this text, and really we see all through the Scriptures, is that man doesn't honor God as he should be honored. We think of him as as much less than he actually is. 
And contrast to that, we also lift ourselves up. We think of our own selves as actually being pretty good than the average Joe. I've told you before that 95% of people in America think that they're better drivers than others. That can't be right. We can't all be that good. And yet that's just a reflection of our hearts. We all think we're pretty good. Especially as it relates to God, we probably also think that God is actually a lot more like us than we would like to, to really imagine. The reality is that God is not like us in most ways that are important. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, His wisdom, His power, His holiness, His justice, His goodness, and truth. And we are not like that. We're wickedly sinful. We pursue everything but God. Were it not for the Holy Spirit, we would still be pursuing other things. I was told of a, of a young person recently who, who has explained the goodness and grace of God, and she told the teacher that she actually thought she deserved God's goodness and grace. She thought that she was actually worthy of the death of the Son of God. What's happening in her heart? Well, she just is showing us what all of us actually believe before we're instructed in the Word. We all take God for granted every day. We think we deserve God's favor. We think He's very much like us. And often we treat God like He's some kind of mechanical vending machine we put in our quarters and we get what we need, which is salvation. What a horrible thing. What a blasphemy. So one of the things we see in this Scripture is that Jesus understands all this and He still shows great compassion to His people. This is kind of one of the messages we see in Jonah, the book of Jonah. Jonah is told to go and what? Preach to the great city of Nineveh. What does he do? Does anyone know what Jonah does? Goes the other way. Nineveh's that way. He gets on a boat that way. He kind of has this very comfortable almost despising of God's Word. It's kind of easy contempt. He's just he's too familiar or something. We don't know. But he disobeys God. And then what do we see in the whole rest of the book of Jonah? Everyone else honors God and lifts Him up. They throw Jonah off of the ship. The, the, the waves calm and everything is safe again. And what do the sailors do? They worship God. They do what Jonah himself should have done. They worship God. Jonah also should have obeyed God. And then we see examples of a fish obeying God. Jonah says specifically that the fish was told to do that and he does it. We see a plant obeying God. God ordained a plant to come up. We see a worm obeying God. But who do we not see obeying or honoring God? Jonah. Well, this is kind of Jesus' um, situation with the Jews that He's coming to minister to. He's, he's the Messiah, first of the Jews, then of the Gentiles, and He comes to His own people, and they treat Him like Jonah treated God. They treat Him as if He were actually nothing. And we know that the Jews, in large measure, reject Jesus ultimately. God's people today, I believe, need to remember this for our lives. God is not like us, and we all all that we have to Jesus. We owe our allegiance to Jesus. We owe the honor due to, to God Himself to Jesus. We owe our love to Jesus for all time, no matter what the circumstances are in our lives. We should take Jesus to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish until death. And then we're not separated from Him. We're actually much closer to Him after that. So God will receive honor. He will be glorified in Christ Jesus our Lord. And someday, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But this is all by means of introduction. This is what should be, we're going to see in this passage, the way things actually were for Christ. And still, in spite of the lack of honor and maybe the insincere, initially insincere, pragmatic faith, we see His great compassion for these people. So we're going to talk about honor, faith, and compassion in that order as we work through this particular text. 
First, let's talk about honor. Look in verse 43. 43 through 45. So after two days, after two days in Samaria, he departed for Galilee, where Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. So what are we to make of this kind of this kind of transitional introductory remark to this next event? Jesus remembers that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown, but then the Galileans supposedly are welcoming him. Well, this 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 is kind of a proverb that Jesus apparently it was well known. And his disciples were remembering that Jesus affirmed, yep, this is true. A prophet has no honor in his hometown. He says it in the other Gospels as well. The context, remember, is that he's been rejected by the Jews in Jerusalem. He's gone to Samaria and been received and welcomed by these people that were despised by everyone else. And now he's coming home to his own home, to the people he grew up with. And he's rejected, we know later. He's rejected also in Galilee. But then how do we explain the welcome that it says he received? It says in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. What is that? Well, as the letter of John progresses, we'll see that this welcome was a very superficial welcome. If it was a welcome at all. The welcoming Jesus as you would welcome a, a famous sports star. They love his notoriety. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem. They saw the miracles that he had done in Jerusalem. So they welcome him but not for His messianic purposes, not for His divinity, not because of the mission that His Father had given Him. They're welcoming Him because they'd seen all the things that He had done. So this welcome is kind of the biting irony that John is putting in our face. He's showing the irony of this welcome is actually a, a very superficial welcome. It reminded me, kids, of uh, if you've ever watched Bugs Bunny. Have you guys watched Bugs Bunny before? No. Yeah, I know you have, Ed. So, mom and dad, you got to like throw some Bugs Bunny in the mix sometime. So, there's a, a cartoon where the, a big bad wolf tells Bugs Bunny that he wants to have him over for dinner. He said, I'd like to have you over for supper. Does he really want to have him over as a dinner guest? Well, we find out later that what he really wants to do is eat Bugs Bunny. He wants to have him over for supper. It's very ironic that he would say that. But we know that what he really meant was he was going to have Bugs Bunny to eat him. So it's the same kind of irony that John is putting forward for us today. He's, he's showing us that they welcomed him, but we know the rest of the story. This welcome is a very ironic kind of welcome. They're welcoming him as you might welcome some kind of circus performer who's going to do some tricks for you or something. They like what He provides. The entertainment that He gives. The other Gospels attest to this as well. His rejection of the region of His childhood was pronounced. And Jesus says much the same in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. This is the beginning of His ministry. He stood up to read on the Sabbath from Isaiah. And He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me because He's anointed Me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and restoring of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is announcing that He's the Messiah right there in the synagogue. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of the whole synagogue were fixed upon Him. And He began to say to them, Today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of Him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from His mouth. But it was very superficial. It wasn't from the heart because the very same verse says, and they said, is this, is this not Joseph's son? And He said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut, and shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha 
And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled with wrath. And they rose up and this is, he's just announced himself. And they were all marveling at him in one minute. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill so that they could throw him off the cliff. But he went away. So this is the kind of welcome that we see happening here in Galilee. It's a superficial welcome of a superstar. They don't actually love him. They don't love his mission. They don't love the Father. They'd seen the signs that he had done and they welcomed him. They want to see more signs and wonders. But in chapter 2 of John, we, we are told also that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. He wasn't, he wasn't taken by surprise by any of this. He had just left a group of people in Samaria with very real faith, and he had done no miracles there that we're told. He just preached the word. And now he comes to the region of his own childhood, the people he grew up with, his local people, and he knows that they're not going to give him any honor as the Messiah or as the Christ. Not only because they knew him as a child also, but just because of the hardness of their own hearts. So this, this welcome over the course of the gospel de degenerates into just the desire to kill him. As the beginning of his ministry showed us, ultimately they desire to kill him. So they did not receive Jesus in his hometown. In part, it seems, because of their fallen nature. This is one of the themes of John and the Gospels, that Jesus was rejected by the Jews, but especially those most intimate with him in Galilee. The prophet has no honor in his hometown. They rejected the Lord and giver of life. Calvin tells us, related to this passage, that this must also be understood as a general principle related to any teacher. Any teacher in any church. If you're from another church, you need to remember this. Uh, if you're from any church, you need to remember this. Our prideful hearts always desire something more than what God has provided in the place where we live. Not just in every other sphere of life, but also spiritually. And familiarity in our fallen nature breeds contempt. So our hearts need to be trained. We desire more than God has provided for us spiritually. Dissatisfied with the way your husband leads at home spiritually. Dissatisfied with the way your pastor preaches to you or your, your Sunday school teacher teaches you or the, the nursery is teaching your children. We're, we don't value what God has given us locally. We want something more. Because a prophet's not valued in his hometown. This is a principle for life. I actually see this on my farm. If you have animals, you've probably seen something similar. My cows are not content with the grass that's right there for them. They would risk being shocked and stick their head through this electric fence to get the grass that's actually the same grass just on the other side of the fence. And then my chickens want to eat my cat food. My cats want to eat my dog food. My dogs want to eat my people food. Like No one just wants what they've been given. The incarnate Son of God Himself had been sent to the Jewish people. They were there with the Son of God. But because they knew Him, they grew up with Him, they gave Him no honor. They wanted something different, something more. We need to be aware of this in our own lives. We need to be aware of this in our own churches. Every true church has been given a personal representative from God, but like Christ, this man or men are often rejected. That's why we have so many encouragements to the church. And I'm not saying all this because I need your honor. I'm saying this because it's in the text and I'm just not afraid to preach it. Let the elders be considered worthy of double honor. Why does Paul say this? Because he knows our nature. He knows that we're so quick to take the elders and push them off to the side. These people are sinful just like me. I know this guy. I've been to his house. He's not a holy guy. Okay. But this is the man that God has given you to shepherd your soul. Hebrews 13 says, Obey and submit to these elders because they are keeping watch over your souls. As to those who have to give an account 
Your spiritual leaders are handpicked and sent from Jesus to care for your souls. And in so much as they do that faithfully, your natural inclination is going to be to push away from them. Because we don't like to hear God's Word. And yet they're the king's men sent to do his bidding. And you should pray that they do it. You should pray that your shepherds do the hard things. You should train your hearts to honor your spiritual shepherds. Not to be like the Galileans who treated Jesus without any honor in his own hometown. Certainly Jesus, what he told his disciples is true. If they treated me this way, they're going to treat you this way. And of course, it's true for every shepherd ever since. That's why it's so important for shepherds to make sure they know that they work for God and not for man. I don't expect your honor. Our our elders don't expect your honor, but God does. So in thought, word, and deed, train your hearts here in your hometown to embrace what God has given you. You don't like what God's given you? Well, you need to talk to Him about it. Kurt, come tell me as well. I'll do what I can, but ultimately... God has brought me here. He's brought your shepherds here. He's brought your elders here. He'll raise up other shepherds as well. And they're not just voted on by the congregation. They're appointed by God. And yet, hopefully, our attitude in serving you... And y'all are wonderful. I'm not rebuking you. I love you. And y'all have been wonderful to me and to the elders. But the Word is what it is. Jesus had no welcome in His own hometown. They rejected the Lord and Giver of life. And yet, what's His response? He endures it for the sake of the people that He loves. He endures it for the sake of His Father. And this whole thing was prophesied in Isaiah 49. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. This is talking about the Messiah. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. This is Jesus' attitude. He's going to do His job. He's just going to do what His Father has told Him. With as much love and compassion as we will see later in this text. So if a prophet has no honor in his hometown, Jesus received no honor from these Galileans. Indeed, they've already tried to kill Him once. And in this context... This man comes to him. This is the second. Let's look at faith. We've looked at honor. Now let's look at faith. Verse 46. So he came to Canaan and Galilee where he had made water, wine, and in Capernaum. And there was an official whose son was ill. And this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee. And he went and asked him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. So Jesus is in Cana of Galilee where He had made the water wine. Remember, there's no part of Scripture that's an accident. There's no wasted word. There's no wasted letter. There's no wasted crossing of a T or dotting of an I. So why are we told that He's in Cana where He had made the water wine? John wants us to remember something about that miracle and then to apply it here as well. There's some similarities that He wants us to notice. A few of these similarities, I actually hate A.W. Pink, highlights them really well. I'll just mention a couple. In both cases, we see a gentle, a gentle rebuke from Jesus. Jesus recognizes that his mother doesn't exactly know what she's asking. And he also recognizes that, that this man actually has a need, but he doesn't actually understand everything that's going on and his own, his own sinful nature even. And he rebukes both of them, gently rebukes them. And in response to that rebuke, we see obedience and faith. We see they believed God and they acted in obedience. And then we see God performing in a miracle. Jesus, not by touching anything or saying anything even, He just does it. He performs a miracle. And the result is true belief. True belief. And the one hand in Cana where the wedding was, we see that the servants, the slaves who were doing all the work and saw what had happened, they believed in Him. Jesus believed in Him. Sorry, his disciples believed in him. And here, this man and his whole family believed in him. So what a wonderful thing that Jesus confronts them, he convicts them, and then he converts them. Much like he did the woman at the well. So who is this official? This this official who comes to him. Some think he's a Roman official. 
Some think he's just a, a Jewish man who works for King Herod. We don't know exactly, but he's an official. Uh, the word is actually little king in, in the Greek. So he's probably someone who worked for Herod, the big king. Um, he's a nobleman, an honored member of the court. Uh, it would be like uh, the president's chief of staff or press secretary or someone like that coming. And Wouldn't that be amazing if they got saved? Wouldn't that be awesome? Be like that, though, if some high, important official comes to Jesus with a request, a special request. And his rank is mentioned because this makes the miracle of greater notice to the general public. And what was the need? His son was ill to the point of death. So no one who's been in this position can ever doubt how much this man wants his son well. Some of you have had children who have died. You know that, that pain and that sorrow. You would do anything to help that child. If you've ever had children who have, who have been in great sickness or need, you know what that is. You know that, that feeling. This is this man. He's coming to Jesus. His son is dying. And he says, Jesus, my son is ill. Come heal him. I think it's not just, not just Christian people who do this. I mean, I think it's instinctive to everyone. There really are no atheists in a foxhole. I've told you before, I remember before our very first combat mission, this, all of these, these men, I love them. They're good men. None of them were Christians. We're all sitting in this big briefing room, kind of like this, or about probably this many people there. And we had never even seen the chaplain. We're going into harm's way for the very first time. The chaplain walks up and he gets in front of the thing and he takes the microphone. And I'm like, oh, this is going to go well. Like, I know these guys, they don't believe in God. And he said, let's pray. And every eye went down. Everyone closed their eyes. They were praying as if they had known God for their whole lives. Why is that? Because they were in great need. And the human heart, when it's in great need, often turns to the only one who can help. Whether they know Him or not. Know Him personally or not, they know that God exists. So instinctively, this man is turning to God. His son was near death. The situation was desperate. In verse 49, he says, Sir, come before my child dies. He wasn't considering the theological implications of what the Messiah meant to him. He wasn't considering the prophetic utterances of the Old Testament and how the Messiah fulfilled these things. All he knew that his son was sick. Now we know that the Holy Spirit, because we know the rest of the text, we know the Holy Spirit was already using this to draw him to himself. He was already at work in his life in some way. He was already working faith in this man's soul. And he calls out, Come before my child dies. I will say too, some of you are in great need at present. Never get tired of calling out to God. Your soul may be exhausted from calling out. Keep calling out to God. Call out to Him. We're commanded to do this. This is what most of the Psalms are. It's just calling out to God. And the Psalms are your prayer book. You tell me, I don't know how to pray, Pastor. And I know some of you don't pray very much. That's... That's something that should change. But when these times of great need come, it's God calling you back to prayer. So open the Psalms and call out to God. Pray as David prayed. How long, O Lord? I need Your help, Lord. Help. And if this is the first time you've prayed in a long time, call out anyway to God. And lament your lack of prayer before this event and then decide to pray more in the future. Again, this is part of the purpose of our hardships. We see it in this very text. This hardship was used to bring this man and his family to the Lord. So our hardships often serve that very purpose. They highlight our own selfish wandering. And we're called back to God in prayer. So pray often when you're in need. But Jesus sees in this request a reflection of the Jewish people's attitude toward God at this time. He says in verse 48, Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So he's talking to the man. 
But in the man, he's talking to the whole Jewish nation. And we know this because this word you is plural. Unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He's talking to the man as if he's the whole Jewish nation and he's telling him, y'all won't believe unless you see signs and wonders. This continued even to the time of the apostles. In 1 Corinthians 1.22, Paul says that Jews still demand signs. Unless you see signs, you won't believe. They often did see great signs that Jesus did, and they still didn't believe. And think of, think of the situation, too, at this time. It had been 400 years of silence. No prophets speaking. No word from God. 400 years. That would be as if we didn't have the Word of God speaking to us since 1623. 400 years. 400 years. And now Jesus is among them. And John the Baptist prophesying before Him after 400 years, and they didn't believe. They did not believe. They should have had the attitude of Moabite. The Moabite Ruth. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And rather, what Jesus sees is wherever you're doing miracles, there I go. Wherever you're doing something wonderful, I'll be there and I'll watch it. But your God's not my God. We need also to remember that there's no amount of evidence or miracles that will change a hard heart. The Holy Spirit has to do that. The Holy Spirit has to do that work. There's no amount of evidence. You're not going to convince somebody to be a Christian. Yes, you should tell the truth as convincingly as possible. But you're not going to change anyone's heart. That's the Holy Spirit's job. So he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He's talking to the Jews. You're just not going to believe unless I do signs and wonders. Those old wicked Jews. See, this is us too. Like we, we instinctively point to them in the Bible and we say, we wouldn't have acted like that. No, you would have. This is us. It's, it's using God in a pragmatic way. This is, this is a great error. Not only in the church, but outside the church. It's using God versus loving God. How do you see that? Well, I think very commonly, you see in many churches just this idea that you believe a certain number of facts about Jesus. You got your ticket to heaven. You put it in your pocket. And you're good for life. Right? We do believe that when Jesus saves you, He saves you for life. But it's not this... This, this mechanical process where I believe a couple things and then I'm good. Is this really true faith? Yeah, I, I believe Jesus died on the cross like I believe the sun comes up every morning. And if I drop my pen, it'll fall to the ground. I believe that. That's saving faith? No, that's not what the Scripture teaches us at all. When God regenerates your soul, you're a new creation. Everything you love changes from the world to God. Everything is different. This, this fire insurance mentality of the Gospel is a blasphemy. This pragmatic use of God is unholy. You see, when you become a child of God, your heart is overflowing with love for Him. This isn't something that's one and done. You just put it on the shelf and, oh yeah, I'm good. I know God pretty well. That's not a true salvation. That's not a true Gospel presentation. Well, what is the true Gospel? That we're hopelessly lost. We're more sinful than we can ever imagine. And there's nothing in my heart that wants to serve God at all. And not only am I more wicked than I ever thought, God is more holy and pure, more righteous and just than I could ever imagine. He stands in or sits in unapproachable light. He's so pure in His holiness that no sin can come into His presence. So there's a hopeless chasm between us and God. There's nothing you can do to fix it. So God did it Himself. He sent His own Son to the earth so that when God hung on that cross, the incarnate Son of God, Jesus, hung on that cross and He substituted Himself for us who should be there. And He took our sins upon Himself to save to the uttermost all who would have faith in Him. That's the Gospel. And those who have been saved by God 
your life has changed. There's nothing about it that's just a mechanical vending machine mentality of a gospel presentation, assigning a, a victory card after some altar call. No, God saves you. So let's get behind us this pragmatic view of salvation, this pragmatic view of God. I also see this in, in healing conferences. You, you know, there was a time in my life when I was a charismatic. and I've been to healing conferences. Seeing these men who supposedly have this power of healing, it's not real, of course. Now I know that. I think at the time I even probably knew it. But people are going not because they have some great interest in learning about God. Why do they go? Well, I need some. It's the same exact thing that Jesus faced. I just need something. Do you want to know about God? Well, I guess so. That's part of it. Just heal me. Or prophecy conferences. have not been to one of those. But they exist. It's like God's some fortune teller. I'm going to go. I'm going to go because if I go and I do my part, then God will start telling me the future and I'll, I'll know more. Or the, you remember the recent Asbury College revival? And people flocked there from all over the country. Like you can catch the Holy Spirit like catching a cold or something. I just better go there. What an unholy way to think of God. What a pragmatic use of God. What a, what a pragmatic faith that that reflects. These are not evidences of true faith. It's actually quite the opposite. God does sometimes stoop and help people that do those things. This is true. He's a gracious God. But it's not right. He's not going to be used like some secret potion. Remember the Israelites taking the tabernacle into battle? Like, oh, the Philistines are going to defeat us. I know. Let's grab the tabernacle and we'll take this into battle with us because then we'll have this, this lucky rabbit's foot that will defeat all our enemies. That's not right. God's not going to be mocked in that way. Either then or now. What's the alternative? Like Jesus told the Samaritan woman in the last chapter, we come to worship God in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. Not a carnal, worldly, self-centered worship of our own making that meets our own needs, but actually coming to God because we love Him. We love Him with all of our heart and our soul and our might and our strength. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe the church faces the same mentality today. And yet, Jesus knew this when He was dealing with this official, when He was dealing with those Jews, and when He's dealing with us. He knew this. He had no illusions about what He was dealing with. As we read in Psalm 103, He knows we are dust. He knows us. We're not bringing anything new to the table. You lament your attitudes concerning God, and you should, and... God knows this already. You might as well just tell Him, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for thinking such low views of you when I should have thought high views of you. You know, one of my favorite authors is David Wells who said the fundamental problem in the evangelical church today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon His church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His Gospel is too easy and His Christ is too common. Jesus faced that same attitude. It's not just the church today. It's always been that way. And yet Jesus knew. He knew that He was getting into this situation. He knew exactly what was happening. And although He was displeased with these people's lack of faith and love for God, He still patiently healed them and loved them. So I've been bashing the church in a way for a couple of minutes, but now look at God's response to us as humans. Go, your son will live. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Look at that. Knowing what you know about human nature and about these people and knowing that they've already tried to kill him and knowing that eventually he will be killed by the Jews. He still shows such compassion for His people. And I love the, the absolute authority 
That's one thing in the Gospels that you will see again and again when Jesus walks this earth. Absolute authority. He's not concerned. You think He's concerned about your problems? He's not. It's, it's, he's concerned for you. But your problems are an easy thing for God. He doesn't have to go to this man's house. He doesn't even need to say anything. He just does it. In every situation, He's not distressed by any request. We see the opposite when Elijah heals a boy. What does he do? He has to go to him. He lays on him. He breathes on him and helps him get up. Peter does the same thing. He's got to touch him. And Jesus doesn't need to do any of that. Just does it. He says the word. He's in authority today as well. Complete sovereignty over everything. Over all the earth. And He knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows the darkest corners of your heart. And yet... Great compassion. Just like this man. Full of compassion. What kindness and mercy and tenderness. And the Jews, they, they did, did desire signs and wonders. They wanted to selfishly use their Messiah, and yet He healed many, many more of them as well. What an encouragement when we pray that God is sovereign and wise and good and just, and He loves us. Our Father is a loving Father. He's willing and able to help us. Our Shepherd is a good Shepherd, leading us to green pastures. Our Master is a kind Master, placing easy yokes and light burdens upon us. Our Savior is a sacrificial Savior. He gave His own life to bring you into His family. So we pray confidently that He hears us. And we believe God. Now note too that Jesus doesn't always do what we ask Him to do. God doesn't always do what we ask Him to do in the way that we want Him to do it if He does it at all. What did this man say to Jesus? Come with me. Jesus didn't go with him. He's like, ah, I hear you. No, your, your son's fine. He didn't go with him. He answered this request very differently. And that's why when we pray, we should always acknowledge that God is sovereign. We pray, Thy will be done. Not ours. Not to us, but to Your name be the glory. Not as I will, but as You will. That's Jesus' own prayer. More than our own desires, we want what God desires. Because we have to remind ourselves that although what we want may be a good thing, God knows best. He knows best. He orders all things according to the divine purpose of His own will. For His own glory. For our ultimate good. And people ask hard questions too, like, well, how can you explain this, this massive shooting or this horrible natural disaster or all of these things where it seemingly it looks like just a horrible loss of life? And you say God uses that for good? Yes, absolutely. Maybe not in a way that we see in our lives, but in the end, it's going to be used for good. It will be in some way because He's God and He does that. I remember when we were at Biltmore, uh, we got to walk through that one room, if you've ever been there, where there's these large like 500-year-old tapestries on the wall. Like they cover this whole wall. They tell us it took five years to make them or something. And it's, it's a painstaking process where each thread is kind of put on the, the loom or whatever it's called and it's pushed together. And each thread has to be the right color to make the, the whole thing like you see stories of the Bible in this gigantic tapestry. Well, that's one of the ways that we can look at God's providence. And we know in the end that it's going to be a beautiful tapestry. In the end of time, we're going to look at it and we're going to go, wow, God, what an amazing plan. But we don't get to see the finished product. We may just see that one dark thread today that's the loss of a loved one. Or that's the difficult trial that I'm in. And that one dark thread is just part of that great tapestry that's going to be wonderful and beautiful in the end. But today we just don't understand it except that it's dark and it's hard. And yet this is absolutely true. God uses all things for His good. For our good and for His own glory. Just as He did in this man's life. And as He was going down, His slaves met Him and said that His son was recovering. And He said, 
what hour did this happen? And they told him at the seventh hour, which is about 1 p.m., the fever left him. And the father knew that, that this was the hour that Jesus said, your son will live. So again, this is in the, the Scripture for a reason. Why? What's the point of it? We need to remember and look for God's work. When we look back on our lives, you should see God's work. And it's not hard to do. It's not hard. You may not always get it right, but you can understand that God and His sovereignty, nothing happens apart from His will. His fatherly care is more exact and complete than we could ever, ever imagine. So we need to not only pray, but when God answers prayers, look back and remember just how good He's done. And even when we haven't prayed, we can still see it. Well, why were you delayed in traffic for 20 minutes? I was late for that meeting. Oh Lord, what was the purpose of that? You may not know, but you can be certain it was a good thing. You met someone, you talked to someone, you had time for this or time for that, or you're protected from something bad. God used that delay for His own good purposes. We don't know, but when we look at details, we can often see God's work. When you look back at God's answered prayer, you can often see how things have all added up to, to make it good. He orders all things. There's no chance. There's no random. It's all God. Every bird falls from the sky according to the Father's will. Do you believe this? Every bird? Every gopher tears up my yard according to the Father's will. Really? Yes, really. Every hair on your head is numbered. Is that just a figure of speech? Nope, it's real. He knows every hair on your head. Every animal is fed by God. Every day that you live, that day is written down by God. And this providence and this wonderful sovereignty over all the universe, not only is it a wonderful comfort for us as God's people, but it leaves all men without any excuse. And when we pray, we know that God has ordained even the means to the end. In other words, He's ordained our prayers to accomplish His mighty purposes. He's that unchangeably good. He's that eternally wise. He's that infinitely capable. We, we should always be reminded that there are no coincidences in the world. And here, God graciously does this for this man. Hey, what time did this happen? This happened at 1 o'clock. Oh, that's the exact time Jesus said. Like He makes it clear in this man's mind that He did this. He saves not only this father, but his whole household. So let's conclude with this, this wonderful salvation that came to this man's house. He himself believed and all his household. This was the second sign that Jesus did when He had come from Judea to Galilee. He believed in all his household. How did his household believe? That God just put some knowledge into their minds? No, dad had to talk. Father had to tell the family what was happening. It's the responsibility of all dads to train up their homes, their, their wives. They're supposed to instruct their wives in the truth. Doesn't mean you're smarter than her, but it means that's your job. Your children need to be taught the way of God. This man believed in all of his household. And God gave them all saving faith in their Messiah. Praise God. He may have come to him selfishly for just one specific purpose, and God answered his prayer in an amazingly different way. A much better way. So in the end, we see that God brought the son of this man to the point of death so that He could bring the whole family to life. You see that? He, he does the same thing in our lives. He brings us to a point, of, uh, a point of great dismay, maybe of great danger, and then ultimately it's always working out for life. Maybe not physical life, but for spiritual life, for spiritual good. That's what God does. And this also reminds us of the Gospel. Jesus, the Son of God, He didn't just get sick. He died. He died so that the entire household of God might have life. His whole family might have life. 
So we should see our great poverty and our faith. We should come to God with the desperation of this man in great need. Because ultimately, if you're not with Christ, if you've been following God in some superficial way, like we talked about earlier, your whole life, or maybe in your young life, the reality is you're in desperate need of of life. And you need to come to Jesus as this man came and saying, Lord, save me. This proud, official, noble man was humbled by God. This reed was bruised so that God's glory might shine brightly in his life and the life of his family. Praise God. Praise God and honor him. Honor him well. Honor his representatives on the earth that do his bidding. Make sure your faith is a real faith and not a false faith, not a pragmatic faith, and always recognize the great love of God in your life. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we have this time in this Sabbath day, this day of rest devoted to Your worship, not only to sing praises to You, but to hear You speaking to us. We pray in Jesus' name that Your Spirit would would imprint Your Word upon our souls, that we might love You and serve You with all of our hearts and with all of our souls, with all of our mights, with all of our strength. Lord, You know how weak and weary we are, but we're so grateful that You won't break a bruised reed. You won't snuff out a smoldering wick. Rather, You lift up the wounded into Your arms and You hold them tightly to Your bosom. Lord, we need Your help. We pray that You would soften us. You would encourage us. You would strengthen us. That we might do Your will to Your glory and love You well. In Jesus' name, Amen.